0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. Thanks so much for tuning in, whether you're listening live on the radio or you are tuning into our podcast, we very much appreciate your time. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Catherine. Good morning.
0: Good morning, Dr. Shane.
1: You're, uh, you were running around earlier. We weren't sure what was going on.
0: Absolutely. Trying to escape the rain.
1: It sounds yes. like you, yeah, you did well. And Dr. Linden, good to see you. We haven't seen each other much lately.
2: I know I've been away. Dr. Shane, been doing yeah. some exciting science up in Sydney, but it's good to be back.
1: Exciting science in Sydney.
2: Yes. I'm exploring the old libraries <laughs> and the archives, trying to find some more historical weather information. It's been good fun.
1: <coughs> Junk sorry. Uh <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> I know you love to get into the old books and uh yeah. They have a great smell. They, you know, they do They it.
2: do have a great smell, but actually it's quite dirty work, so I yeah, went, out, yeah. went out to the archives in Sydney. It's in, far out in Western Sydney, and I was exploring these old uh, documents from the Sydney Observatory, and at the end of the day, I had to use gloves every day, and the, my gloves were black by the end of the day, and there wow. were little bits of parchment all over the place because as I was turning these pages and looking at these different letters, mm. they were almost disintegrating in my hands, so you had to be very careful. It's not, not as clean as, I don't know, maybe, some other some other field work that other types of science get to do we get our hands dirty as well in climate science
1: I just I just love that smell I remember uh whenever I, well, whenever I still walk through or past the Bailey Library at the University of Melbourne, there's an old book smell that just wafts out the door. And it takes me back to my undergraduate days. Like It just yanks me back really quickly.
2: It's a very grounding smell. It's a grounding smell. If that's a good adjective for smell, yeah. I'm not sure if it no, is. It's great.
1: great <laughs> it's great. Now, we've got some news. Uh, Dr. Catherine, let's start with you. What have we got?
0: Dr. Shane, this week I have been reading about some research around ageing and um, around how biological ageing is changing over time. So it's quite well known that life expectancy of humans is increasing and it's increased significantly after over the last 50 to 60 years or in fact over the last 100 years. And interestingly, some some data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has shown that compared to boys and girls born in the 1880s, mm-hmm. compared to then, children born in the last couple of years are living an extra 33 or 34 years longer. Wow. So it shows you to what extent life expectancy has actually risen over the last 100 Mm. years or so. So now, so back in the 1880s, um, children born at that time were only expected to live till they were about 47 if they were a a male and 50 if they were a female whereas now if if there's a boy or girl born in between 2013 to 2015, Mm. they're expected to live in Australia to the age of 80.4 years for males and 80 4.5 years for females so it's really risen over that time so with that in mind some really interesting research has come out very recently from the US looking at how biological aging has changed so we know life expectancy has increased in particularly chronological age, so, so the age from the time someone was born. But biological ageing is quite different. It's how the human body is aged. So, for example, you may you may know of someone who you're quite surprised when you actually hear of their age. They might look and appear quite different.
1: Yeah, I was surprised to hear you were 40. I <laughs> well, don't look a day over 23.
0: Well, lucky I'm not 40, but thank you. Thank you. I'll take, I'll take that as a compliment. But, yeah, absolutely. So you might meet someone, say they're 70. You can't believe they're 70. Yeah. They look like they're 60 all the other way around. We see it a lot in healthcare. We meet someone, we find out they're 70, and actually they present and look like they're late 80s or early 90s. Yeah. So people's biological age can be quite different to their chronological age. Harrison Ford. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Doesn't absolutely. look his age. Yeah. What
1: is
3: he, 106? Not quite. It's
0: close. And in in terms of healthcare, it's a bit of an issue um, with the life expectancy increasing if our health state does also not increase at the Mm. same rate because what we're actually seeing is that people are living longer, but they're living longer with diseases at the end of their lifespan and then obviously there's significant costs on the individual, their family and the healthcare system. So there's been very little research actually um, understanding how biological age is changing. So this is age that takes in to consideration a number of factors, such as a person's metabolic system, their cardiovascular heart system, inflammatory and organ function, like their kidneys, liver and lungs. So it's actually mm-hmm. how the body the body is functioning. So researchers uh, conducted a study looking at 20,000 people. They compared their biological age from 1980 to 1994, to a period where they've recently surveyed in 2007 to 2010, and they've found, in fact, for the first time, that biological ageing uh, is improving or getting getting uh, older. So we're finding that people are ageing at a lower rate compared to previously.
1: Is that? I mean, do you think that's diet and and just awareness of what causes? biological aging I mean I mean we are if you, if you took the average number of people for example in the city that smoke for example it's it's a lot lower now than it than it was 50 years ago I mean the, things like that age the body very rapidly
0: definitely two key factors I think play a big part in this the first one as you described is um, behavioral or environmental mm-hmm. factors and exactly what you you mentioned smoke is an independent risk factor and they found that again in this study people who smoke have accelerated aging yeah. so it's quite well
1: you can okay. see it in the skin yeah. I mean, it always bothers me when I see a young person person smoking that has amazing skin and I kind of want to walk up to him and say by by the amazing skin yeah. inside of fifteen years, you, that that's one of the things that ages very rapidly.
0: Definitely, and mm. obesity was the other big right. factor. So, and in fact, they had an additive effect. So, if you were someone who smoked and you're obese, right. your your accelerated rate of aging was quite significant. The other component ab- bit above uh, environment is genetic factors. So, they think that also has a part to play. Uh, but it's really interesting when we think that people are aging um, mm. at a you know at a slower rate, but then we're understanding the impact of some of those environmental factors. It's a very big, Case for people to to carefully look at what they what they're doing with their body and trying to slow the rate of aging. Because there's
1: a big difference between keeping someone alive. And having them live. Yes. And definitely. that's, you know, we've become really good at keeping people alive. And the, the the part I find fascinating is how, you know, when you talk since like, you know, basically the turn of the last century, you know, 1900, um, we've gone and added 35 odd years to our life expectancy. And if you look at the last thousand years before that and how much we added, it was probably... Ten or twenty years, maybe twenty years. No, nowhere near as much. Over a really, really protracted period. You know, thank you antibiotics and clean water. Mm. Um, But it's a it's a major shift that's happened very, very quickly.
0: Absolutely, medicines and technology have kept exactly as you described kept people alive with diseases, uh, but at sometimes at the expense of a poor quality of life. Mm. Mm. So, really, preventing diseases is the key factor here. Mm. It's fascinating.
1: Dr. Linden, what do you got for us?
0: So I read a study this week, and actually it's quite
2: timely, thinking about how Dr. Catherine had to run in this morning to escape the rain. Uh, a paper that I found in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society is looking at how much it rains. This sounds like quite a simple, boring, often asked and often answered question, how often does it rain? Because you know that we measure rainfall generally in a rain gauge, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about how much it rained. This is how much it rained today. This is how much rainfall we got over the year. This is how many days that it rains. But that is sort of a different question to how rainy a city is. You know, It's not just you can get 10 millimetres of rain in an hour or you can get do you know, one millimetre every hour for ten
1: so, hours. So it's an old thing of, and I think I'll get this right. But being a you know climatologist as you are, I'm sure you'll correct me. That we get more rainy days in Sydney, but they get more rain. Is that? Correct. Yeah, I think yeah. that's
2: right. So Sydney gets more rain, but we get more rainy days. Yeah. So yeah. Melbourne, for example, we get about we get rainfall about 100 days a year. Mm-hmm. Yep. We get about 650 millimetres of rainfall per year. Paris gets about the same amount of rainfall as us, but they get about 11 or 12 more rainy days. Right. Yep. So Barcelona and London, for example, they get similar amounts of rainfall. Barcelona gets a little bit more, but London's got about 30 more rainy days. Yeah. So it's yeah. more, it's a dreary place. And this, there's a quote from the paper that looks at this new paper that's come out is is looking at how much rain falls every hour Right. Across the globe, right. So this is a new, a new study that's come out that uses uh, a fancy new data set that combines satellite observations. So uh, microwave satellite observations, but also geostatic uh, satellite imagery of clouds to kind of downscale what the microwave satellites see every three hours and then what these geostationary satellites see in clouds all the time. And it's, it's using quite a complicated mm. algorithm to, to approximate Where rain is falling every hour around the globe, right? Actually, it's only 60 north to 60 south because the poles are a little bit harder to look at. Uh, but this fancy new data set is now giving us a better chance. It's quite high resolution as well. It's only about 30 kilometres by 30 kilometre square grid boxes, which is giving us a better indication of where it's raining mm. every hour, which is help. This is a quote from the quote from the authors, providing a realistic way to assess the dreariness <laughs> of a <the> location.
1: <laughs> See how dreary somewhere is. I like the rain. I, people get all upset about it. I love it. But
0: if it it's rained... Weird all day, every, every day. day, yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe you might you feel a little
1: bit different.
2: Yeah, 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 and yeah, it's yeah. hard
0: if you're travelling. You don't want to be on a holiday to a place like, for example, London. I love London, but you don't want to be going there at a time when it's raining. It just yeah. just doesn't feel exactly. the same. Yeah,
2: but when you look it up, when you say, oh, I want to go here, I should see how much it rains there. The and internet we, we, doesn't often say it. rains generally yeah, this like many hours. Yeah, like
1: every day. Like, I, I remember the first time I went to Tokyo, actually, it was during the rainy, rainy season. And, and for those of you who've been to Tokyo, you know, you, you land in the airport and, of course, the, the train station is attached to the airport. So at some point you come out into the world. And I remember just walking out and, and seeing these people selling umbrellas and thinking... I'm not going to get away with this without buying one of these umbrellas. Like it was torrential for like days, and yeah. you know they're used to it. You know, they don't, but we don't get that here in Melbourne. I mean, you don't see that um, sort of real full-on rainy season in Melbourne. No, so no, it, that's
2: right. So the, pa- the paper found that uh, on average around the globe it rains 11 percent of the time. Wow. If you break it down by hours, yeah. if, you, if you look at it by days, statistically it's about 27% of the time. But hourly, 11% of the time. Over land, it's a little bit less. It's about eight. And in Australia, uh, it was about 5% of the time. Uh, 5% mm-hmm. of the hours is raining in Australia. It's Most of low. it, More in the north than in the south. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it is pretty low. And I think it's sort of... Given that the relationship between temperature and rainfall and the amount of moisture that can be held in the air, with climate changes you might have uh, more energy in the system, a little bit more warmth and more moisture being held in the air. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty about how rainfall is going to behave and more intense rainfall is something that few studies have suggested. So, looking at these high-resolution ideas of how dreary a place is, whether it's going to become more or less yeah, yeah. dreary, is actually, it sounds a bit trivial, but it can actually be, be quite important.
1: Yeah. and I, I just, I love the complexity of some of this stuff. Like, so, you know, when Dr Catherine was, you know, screaming in terror before because she was going to get a few drips on her, <laughs> um, but these were the sort of drips this morning that we got that will kill small dogs, you know, they were the that big be, ones, right? It we, was really interesting, you hear them hitting the tin roof here at the station, yeah. and, and like, that with those big whoppers and you yeah. think well the complexity of what size raindrops you get when it rains and for how long and yeah. it, it, there's just so much in there it's fa- it's really fascinating it stuff and,
2: and modeling those things is remarkably complicated oh, yeah. it's at such a small scale and you can mm. understand the physics about it but then getting it into a model and making it be represented realistically is a real challenge so you know this paper is about trying to make a data set that People obviously think that no, data set sounds a bit
1: boring. Trying to yeah, yeah.
2: trying to tie it down to cool ha- what it really means. Yeah. Dr.
1: Lena you and I are always talking about theme shows. Maybe we should do a theme show on rain. Oh my goodness, that that's would be- a great idea! <laughs> That'd be so cool.
3: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: We have our first guest for today on the phone. Her name is Professor Wendy Erber. She is the Dean of the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at the University of Western Australia. Wendy, can you hear us?
3: I can. Good morning.
1: It's great to have you on the line. Thanks so much for giving us uh, some of your time. What what time is it over there in Perth?
3: Well, it's just gone past quarter past eight this morning.
1: Well, we did get you up early on a Sunday.
3: Not at all on a beautiful sunny day.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Now, you've been working on this uh, really impressive new technology for um, looking at uh, essentially how leukemia progresses in the body. And why don't you, first of all, talk us through the the way in which we normally go about monitoring leukaemia as it starts to develop. And I might just ask you, Wendy, if you do have your radio on in the background, if you could turn that down, that would be great. We're getting a little bit of
3: feedback. Okay, so I don't have a radio on in the background. Oh, uh, that's okay. I will, I will talk, tell you about leukaemia. So leukaemia is a cancer that, of the blood where the cells start growing in a cancerous, malignant fashion in the bone marrow. The bone marrow is our blood factory. So it's, it's the eighth most common cancer in Australia and affects about 4,000 people uh, diagnosed every year. Mm-hmm. How do we diagnose it? Well, firstly, patients generally feel unwell and present to their doctor. And then based on how they feel, a blood test will be done. We count the number of cells and then we look at the cells under the microscope. And that will then give us an indication that there's a problem in the bone marrow. And then we do a bone marrow test, taking a sample uh, from the patient's bone marrow and have a look at that uh, after we've stained it uh, with some uh, colourful dyes so we can see the cells more readily and look at the cells. And that appearance, uh, what they look like, is very important. Mm -hmm. That's very subjective. We then do some more scientific tests on those cells to give us uh, more information about precisely what type of leukaemia it is. And then the important test that we've been working on is and looking at the chromosomes, the genetic material inside the cell, because that gives us information about how well or possibly poorly a patient may do.
1: And, and Wendy, how many of the cells do you need to look at in order to sort of make this determination? Are we talking about just a few cells or are we talking about hundreds, thousands?
3: It varies based on the test that we perform, Shane. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the cells down the microscope, we, we will look at thousands of cells with our eye to see how they appear, whether they look like normal cells or not. So that's a very important first step, the screening test, the starting point. Yeah. When we look at the biological characteristics of the cells, the first scientific test we do using an, what's called a flow cytometer and looking at the external characteristics of the cell, that will be looking at a few thousand cells. Okay. And, then, and then the standard genetic test that we perform usually only looks at between 20 and 200 cells, so very few what we've done it, What we've done in our new test is combine all three of those into one.
2: Oh wow! Okay,
3: and that's what the, where the excitement has come. And then we can look at twenty, fifty thousand cells. So many more cells looking at the biological characteristics and the chromosomes inside in one test. And on average, we've been looking at 20,000 cells.
1: Is there a a sort of detection threshold that this changes for patients who are in the very, very early stages of leukemia? Or is, is leukemia something that's fairly easy to pick up?
3: No, it's not always easy to pick up. Some people have very low levels uh, of leukemia, uh, which may not matter in in the first instance, but it will progress. Mm. But when it does matter, if they have a small number of, of the leukemia cells that have a particular chromosome abnormality, so one of the chromosomes has gone wrong, that can impact on how well they will do and will also determine which treatment they need. Therefore, if we can pick up very small numbers of these cells, even one cell in 10,000, that could matter for that person.
1: Yeah. Do, do you know what it will mean in terms of the sort of way in which we treat um, patients over the longer term? Because there, there are scenarios where some of the treatments kind of uh, work the first time and don't work again. Is that Am I right in saying that?
3: You are absolutely right. And it's probably not so much that it works in the beginning and... and and doesn't as it goes on, it's probably there is a a subpopulation of the leukaemia cells that say, no, that treatment isn't going to work on me. I have a genetic change that's different from the other leukaemia cells, which will make me resistant to that treatment. And with the first round of treatment, those cells may only be present in a very small number, but they will outgrow the other cells and therefore become more obvious second time round. And they're the ones that we have to hit with the second line of treatment. So
0: Wendy, do you perform this test over repeated uh, periods of time, potentially as the patient's going through treatment as you were just describing?
3: That That is the plan. At the moment we have just developed the test on, on one type of leukaemia and it is one of the leukemias where the disease may be treated and respond initially and then come back. And if it does come back that's when we need to see has the person now got a new chromosome change that may have uh, impacted on their disease. So the answer is yes, we will be monitoring the leukemias over time. We're not at that stage yet.
0: And Wendy, do you imagine that this test will become widely available uh, to, to other groups around Australia and internationally in the future?
3: Oh, that's certainly the plan. So now that we have developed the test here at the University of Western Australia, we now need to uh, check that it works on, on more patients, more samples, and then we're going to make it available to one other, another site in Australia and overseas to make sure that it works in their, in their hands as well. That's really important.
2: So, Wendy, are you saying that you need specific kind of instrumentation or equipment to provide these tests? How expensive do you think they will be?
3: So there is a particular piece of equipment that we've been using. It's quite the, quite an expensive uh, machine uh, or an instrument. There is at least one of those available in every state of Australia already uh, being used for other purposes. So every state has one. We should be able to make this available nationwide.
1: Oh, wow. Wendy, look, I mean, this is fantastic stuff. One, one of the sort of other questions I have for you is how this will sort of feature in the detection of other types of cancers. Is it specific just to leukemia or do you think this sort of this cell examination sort of process is, is going to lend itself to all other cancers in the future?
3: That's a very important question. Uh, Leukaemia, because it's in the blood, is easily accessible. Mm. Many people, many of your listeners will have had a blood test at some time. Uh, so that's the easier, easier sample to obtain. But going forward, we envisage we will be able to do this test on cells that we extract from or isolate from other, other cancer types. So going forward, we uh, anticipate we'll be able to work on other cancers as well.
1: Yeah, it seems to me as though, you know, one of the great things about your test is its ability to, you know, examine very, very small numbers of cells that are problematic out of, out of large cohorts of cells. And, and in cancers where things aren't spread, so much but might be moving around the body in a small amount, that that specificity would be presumably very important to determining how cancers are staging in the body and becoming more threatening.
3: Yes, and, and that's where the leukaemia can be used as our, our test platform mm. because if we can detect one cell in 10,000 leukaemia cells in blood, there's no reason we wouldn't be able to detect one cell in 10,000 if it happens to be a cancer cell that happens to be in the blood at the time.
1: Yeah. When you, look, this is great to see this work coming out of uh, WA. It's, um, it's really important that, you know, these things are, are progressed and for people who are affected by these diseases and, you know, who know people who are, I think that there's going to be a lot of support for streamlining these, these multiple tests into one and, and doing this sort of work you're doing. So congratulations, keep it up, and um, we look forward to seeing all the, the good things that are going to come out in the future. Well,
3: thank you very much. It's been great talking to you about it. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Wendy. Professor Wendy Erber is the Dean for the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at the University of Western Australia, and they've invented this amazing um, new test for leukaemia cells in the blood.
3: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: In the studio with us, now is Dr. Adam Walker. He is from the Impact Strategic Research Centre in the School of Medicine, Faculty of Health at Deakin University. Adam, welcome to the Triple R Studios. Thanks, Shane. Look, it's great to have you in. We, we um, now we want to talk a little bit later about uh, World Bipolar Day because that was one of the reasons we got you in. But yep. I'm not letting you out of here without we talk a bit about your research because I figure you know, that's that's what well, might be even more interesting. Um, now you you work in sort of the clinical trial space, um, in particular. Around around the sort of area of treating psychiatric conditions so give us a bit of a rundown first of sort of which conditions you're sort of focusing on because I mean there's there's so many yeah yeah
4: so um I'm part of the IMPACT trials team Mm -hmm. at uh, IMPACT. So um, we're uh, investigating psychiatric conditions such as depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, which also includes uh, schizoaffective disorder. And Mm -hmm. we're also looking at uh, substance uh, misuse as well. Okay. So um, smoking and soon as well, I think, um, uh, methamphetamine use.
1: What what do all these things have in common? It seems like, I mean, the difference between substance abuse and schizophrenia seems fairly fairly long-rope.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I mean, they're all uh, psychiatric conditions as, yeah. as um, defined by the DSM five, the diagnostic and Statist- uh, diagnostic the, the big uh, book. Yeah, the big book, <laughs> <laughs> and um, they all have something to do with the brain and uh, psychoactive drugs. So um, hmm. that's sort of uh, why, why they're all sort of encompassed by. Yeah,
1: it. and and the
4: centre down there. I mean,
1: tell us a bit about that. Is it is it one where you're you're doing trials associated with the I assume Barwon Health and the hospital system there? Is that
4: yeah so So Impact's affiliated with um, both Deakin University and Bowen Health. We're Mm -hmm. right across the road um, from University Hospital. Um, We use um, some facilities there as well as um, some facilities in Melbourne, like uh, the Melbourne Clinic and Mm -hmm. Geelong Clinic. Um, And uh, yeah, we've got a series of trials running at the moment.
1: Can you give us an example of what what one of these trials would look like? I mean, it seems to me, whenever I think of psychological disorders of any type, I always think long-term, like a lot of these are, you know, really long-term progression and they're long-term solution often as well. I mean, what sort the trials would i mean give us an example of one you're running
4: yeah so um uh, you know uh, treating uh, psychiatric disorders is a complex and as you've pointed out it can be long term so our team specifically at the moment is looking uh, a lot at add-on treatments that go along with mm. treatment as usual so um there's a few where we're looking at at the moment but one in particular that that is quite interesting is uh an extract from the mangosteen pericarp fruit Right. Right. So, well, the mangosteen fruit, the pericarp is the the rind itself. Um, And mangosteen, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a a, a Southeast Asian tropical fruit. Um, Sounds good. Yeah, they (laughs) they call it the queen of fruits. I tried it recently (laughs) and it tastes kind of like a um, mandarin mixed with uh, grape to me. And what
2: does it look like? Um,
4: It's it's like a purpley colored fruit. Um, It's very dark. But when you cut it open, there, there's uh, this sort of white lychee-like flesh in the inside, and then the outside's like a very bright reddish-purple um, rind, and that's what's used to make this um, uh,
1: the, this compound that we're we're trialling at the that's moment. It sounds like someone's taken a, a small coconut and stuffed it with grapes and mandarins. <laughs> it's,
4: it's a really interesting. thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: well, yeah. how yeah. did
2: this become the fruit of choice? Like, how does yeah. how does one yeah. stumble across? The potentially, really beneficial properties so, of the rind of an obscure fruit. As, as I
4: understand it, um, the rationale is that uh, the the rind protects the inner fruit, and and uh, it contains a lot of antioxidants and also anti-inflammatory um, mm. molecules, and that's what interests us because we think that um, yeah. in the case of uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, that um, these disorders it's sort of been um, underappreciated that they're also inflammatory conditions, and and there's aberrant um, uh, oxidative stress right. as well. And right. So by
1: adding this on, hopefully we can sort of um, improve treatment yeah. response. So I think I already know the answer to this question, but I love asking it. And that's you know, if I was to, if I had one of those conditions, and I said, you know, how about I just eat some of this fruit? How much do I have to eat? Would you be saying? Well, you'd need like a thousand a day. Is it? Is it <laughs> are you taking the compound out and like super intensifying it to make it active? Is that the deal? As, as I understand it, it's um, it's it's not
4: super concentrated, but yeah, you it's not it it's not a just lot. a matter of eating it. And also, yeah. I. Uh, it's the actual rind of the food oh, and it's, very, it's very thick and it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very hard. And uh, I tried tasting a little bit of it. It's very bitter. So you wouldn't want to be eating it, I
1: don't think. Yeah. On its own. <laughs> but it's, uh, look, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's interesting how we find these things. Like, mm. uh, as, as Dr. Lindham was saying, like these random weird fruits that have got, uh, you know, and presumably somehow it's entered into the, the, the biosphere as well. I mean, you know, things eat these fruits, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're active.
2: Can I just ask before we move on, uh, talking about developing all these kind of uh, techniques and all of these, these different uh, approaches. I'm wondering, I'm not quite sure of the space, how much you work with providing these kind of supplements and drugs essentially with sort of psychological um, intervention as well. You guys mm. obviously work as quite a close team.
4: Yeah, so um, our team is uh, trialling these medications uh, in this case, but we also have other trials running at the moment looking at um, psychological interventions um, as well. So So you
2: imagine a combination as being the perfect sort of...
4: I think that there's no one sort of um, catch-all treatment, but uh, a a good blend is probably the best,
1: yeah. Yeah. Now, (laughs) um, before we uh, let you go, of course, we're going to talk about this um, World Bipolar Day, but Mm. can you just give us a bit of an insight? I mean, I, I hear the term bipolar and I hear the word schizophrenia, Mm. and and part of me sort of remembers vaguely watching A Beautiful Mind about John Nash and Mm. thinking I'm pretty sure that's schizophrenia, but Mm. to be honest, I'm not overly clear, um, you know, if you gave me a snap quiz, on what the difference is and and what Mm -hmm. these two conditions are like. I mean, what what separates them? So... Um, they have been sort of paired up and
4: separated over the over, mm, over yeah. history. but um a bipolar disorder is characterized by uh, it's by by phasic nature so hence the bipolar mm-hmm. so um there's uh, it's it's a bipolar disorders have um periods of depression um yep. that are Contrasted by periods of um, elated mood, so that can be mania or hypermania, mm-hmm. um, as well as euthymic periods where uh, there's wellness, of course. Okay. Um, whereas uh, in schizophrenia, it's um, sort of characterised more by uh, three categories of symptoms, mm. positive, negative and uh, cognitive. And the positive symptoms are those classic hallucinations and yep. delusions and so forth. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Adam, are the rates of bipolar and schizophrenia increasing or decreasing with time? Um, that, that's a
4: very hard question to answer, um, simply because it could be a matter of whether or not they're just recognised more now, or um, whether or not reporting is better, but it, it looks like um, over 1% of people experience um, bipolar, and wow. over
1: 1% of people experience schizophrenia. I mean, that's a, that's that's a lot. lot of <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, I was at a luncheon last Thursday in the city, and there was like 300 people there, so mm. on average, three of them are experiencing I mean, that, that's a lot
2: what age can you start identifying these sorts of uh,
4: disorders? So um, both of these conditions um, typically manifest in youth. So um, that sort of period between adolescence and young adulthood. Mm. Um, But there's also other periods like uh, when... um, uh, menopause comes on, for instance. Right. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah.
0: And where are we with, with preventative aspects for these conditions? So if there are arising symptoms in youth, are you doing clinical trials or are there other trials in progress looking at ways we can prevent the, the disease that are progressing?
4: Well, yeah, so the other thing is um, there's some there's research going on at the moment looking at uh, prodromal um, stages. So that's the, the sort of the cascade into... The disease or the illness, I should pro-dromal. say. That yeah, is so a pro- prodromal, yeah. <laughs> so is like um, it's that preemptive stage. Okay, mm. uh, and uh, they're doing research looking at whether or not you can intervene at that point, um, based on recognizing it um, through psychological. Um, mm. uh, factors or um, yeah. biological markers, and then trying to intervene at that stage. Yeah. Now, World Bipolar Day. Mm. What's mm. going on? So um, we're we're holding a um, event in Melbourne this year, which we're really excited about. Last year we held it in Geelong, and it was quite successful. But mm-hmm. we thought we'll bring it to Melbourne. Um, it's going to be held at Deakin Edge, uh, which is a, yep. a beautiful um, venue. I don't know if you guys have been, but it's uh, it's along the Yarra River. Very flash. Yeah, it's very yeah. nice. It's very nice. Um, lots of natural light, and it'll be held at night time. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much natural light, but um, yeah, it, it'll be a beautiful view. Um, so the event itself uh, is free and um, it's going to be a Q&A session featuring three panellists and um, effectively we're hoping to, um, in the spirit of World Bipolar Day, which is held in late March, um, raise awareness about bipolar disorder and also um, fight stigma.
2: Mm-hmm. So if well, people wanted to register mm-hmm. to attend or wanted to hear more about the trials that you yeah. guys are running at IMPACT, where could they find that information?
4: So if they want to register to attend the event, it's available on Eventbrite. Um, I'd encourage you to go down and have a look because it, it does have um, information about all our panellists and mm-hmm. and uh, and what exactly will be happening, um, our service tables and so forth. Um, and. Uh, that's about, If you search in Eventbrite, um, World Bipolar Day, questions unanswered, you'll probably yep. come across it up the top. Um, if they want to find out more about us, um, we're, we've got a website as well. We're affiliated with Deakin, so it's just deakin.edu.au slash impact. Hmm. Um, and,
1: yeah. and the day is just before Easter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so
4: um, World Bipolar Day is classically held on the 30th, but yeah. because the 30th is Good Friday, Good Friday. <laughs> we're, we're holding it a couple of days early on the Wednesday um, from 6 until 8. Um, yeah, and we've got a, an expert clinician, uh, an expert um, researcher and an expert by experience uh, who will all be presenting. It Fantastic. should be a really great
1: day. Good. Well, Adam, thanks so much for coming and talking to us about this stuff. I mean, I, I think this this is really just fascinating work and the, the whole area of mental health and conditions and, and treatments and preemptive treatments mm-hmm. is just going to explode over the next decade or two and we're sort of starting to see some real good progress there, which is great. So I uh, hope you have a good time on on the day and, and you get good support and, and a lot of people go along and, um, yeah, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. On. Dr. Adam Walker is from the School of Medicine and Faculty of Health at Deakin University.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: In the studio with us now is Dr. Matthew Marino. He's from the School of Engineering, Aerospace Engineering and Aviation at RMIT University. Matthew, welcome to the studios of Triple R. Yeah, thank you very much. Now, it's great to have you in. The, the ladies next to me here are going to try and get questions in, but they may not because you work in the area of drones. Which I do. I think it's just super cool. Firstly, how many drones do you personally own? <laughs> do I personally own? Yeah, have you got a whole lot of drones at home just blowing around the house? Uh, I, I actually,
2: Straight to the heart size questions, Dr. Shane.
5: <laughs> I'm fortunate enough to work in the RMIT research team, so the majority of the drones that I use and, and have are funded by research. Oh, that's great. Um, so I don't have to buy my own, which is which is a blessing on my but, behalf.
1: That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, in terms of just the drone, talk us through the drone technology and how it's shifted over probably in the last just ten years, it seems as though we've gone from a scenario where, you know, the U.S. military have drones. All of a sudden, now I can go down to my local department store and buy, a, really, frankly, a pretty kick-ass drone to play with. Yeah. I mean, what has caused that? I mean, I know there's the, the cheapening of technologies, but what has really caused that rapid change in the availability
5: of drones? Well, in all honesty, we we have had uh, availability to remotely piloted aircraft, which was the predecessor to mm-hmm. drone technology, and I used to be an RC pilot. Remote control pilot ever since I was 13, 14 years old. Um, What kind of progressed that into drone technology was really the smarts of the drone. So the computer that lies within the drone that allows it to control itself or stabilise itself or assist in the control of a human. And this is what progressed progressed us forward. Another technology which allowed it was um, battery technology. So as soon as we moved into lithium polymers, we had access to a lot more energy. We could use multirotors, which is what we can buy for JB Hi-Fi or whatever Mm -hmm. store that we want. Um, These multirotor drones, which are very popular, which can stay up in the air for 20, 25, 30 minutes. Uh, Back in the old days, that wasn't possible with a multirotor drone. It was usually fixed-wing aircraft, like it looks like an aircraft, an aeroplane. Um, So they're two of the main things that kind of progressed it forward to today. And the technology within these drones today are pretty advanced. And we're seeing a very unique thing happening is that the commercial market is actually progressing faster than the military market. Right, yeah. So especially with the rise of these consumer-based drones where they take video and photography, a lot of the technology in them are developing at a very fast rate. So um, some good technology like a DJI drone that you can buy now literally has enough Sensory built in in it is that it's actually quite safe to fly. Mm. Um, what progresses us forward even more in this country is CASA, um, and that's because the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, uh, we're kind of leading the world in drone. Um, regulations, which means us
1: as Australians can operate them a lot more freely than other places around mm. the world. Uh, I know we had a guest on probably a year, year and a half ago, and they were talking about the use of drones in farming, which was something that you know I just was not aware of. I mean, quite substantial use by some farmers, especially in the larger farms, it, as as a methodology for monitoring what was, was going on. I mean, most people wouldn't be aware of just how extensive drones are being used in this country at the moment.
5: Yeah, I think... Um the photo and videography are the populated markets, but all these niche areas is where kind of research and development takes place mm. now. So um, agriculture is one big one. So we use a technology called a hyperspectral multispectral camera that measures chlorophyll content within leaves or in plants. Mm-hmm. And we can actually sense the plant's health. So we can map out a whole agricultural area and actually find spots where you have malnourishment or we have uh, reduced growth. So it really can help farming in that regard to maximise the yield of a, of a crop
1: and, and the use of resources. Presumably, I mean, you yes. feed that back into the system. You water this plant, and not that plant. Right? I mean, correct. You know. Correct.
5: Yeah. Um, another. Another field in which um, it's becoming very popular is for uh, gas and oil to sense leaks around plants, mm. um, emissions as well. So you can sense CO2 and monoxides via different types of cameras um, using drones and they can get to places where humans cannot or is risky to a human. So you would send a drone at a low-risk environment. Mm. Um, so all these kind of niche applications are really giving rise to, to new applications and very useful things that reduce
1: the risk in humans. I'm going to unleash the climatologists. It's on you now. Yes. I'm,
2: got, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand the, the role of the research team at RMIT. It's very exciting that you've got a, uh, a sort of a drone research team but yeah. what what is the role of the team? Are you, your day-to-day work, is that looking at actual drone development, flying techniques, you know, the fluid dynamics, physics of flying these unassisted things, or is it working on these interdisciplinary projects, all the different awesome ways that you can use drones to promote science?
5: Uh, it's a good question. It's a, it's a bit of both. Right. Um, so we have a method whereby um, companies come to us and say, listen, we have a new concept we want to try out. We have a fleet of aircraft that we can put new sensors. They'll fund the project and we we'll work with the industry together to see if it is um, worthwhile. Um, the other is the fundamental research. So, we do have PhD students within the group working on the aerodynamics of multi rotor systems or making them quieter um, or trying to stabilize them in really turbulent environments. So, around cities, of course, mm-hmm. you have a very turbulent um, flow environment um, and stabilizing them becomes crucial. Uh, so, basically, um, the thing that I'm working on too, is trying to, um, activate long range package delivery on, on a big fixed wing drone. So instead of having a Australian post driver drive 25 kilometers just to drop, drop off one package, you get a drone to drop them off. That's cool That is cool. Yeah.
2: So does that mean that all of the undergrads who come to your lectures then come up to you at the end of the class and say, when do I get to drive a drone?
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the actual team is integrated within learning and teaching too now. So there are two courses that RMIT do. One's an engineering course which teaches students how to engineer and make their own drones. Um, the other one, which... Um, has just started up this year, is teaching students how to operate drones in a very regulated environment such as Australia and they come out with a private pilot's licence or oh, wow. a drone pilot's mm. licence. Um, so it's it's really integrating within all areas mm-hmm. of the university, both teaching, learning and research. But the students, all the way from undergraduates and then all the way to professors, can come into the team and work
1: on a drone project. So- it's, it's interesting, um, Matthew, with probably the 70s and 80s we saw this massive growth of the use of satellites yes um throughout the world i mean you, you know we are at the point now where you know really you got to watch what you're going to bump into up there there's just so much crap up around our planet um are we entering that same phase with drones? I mean, it seems to me as though a lot of the stuff that traditionally would be given to satellites to do could just as well be done by drones. I mean, with, with normal fixed-wing aircraft, you can't really do that because you can't stay in the one space for long enough and you can't monitor things over longer periods. But but with drone technology, especially some of the smaller drones, not necessarily the bigger ones, it, w- it appears to me as though satellites might be losing their edge over the next couple of decades. Is that, is that, the sort of, is that where you see it going? Uh, I think the, the cost Benefit analysis does
5: trend to that towards that idea. Mm. Um, I think I'll give you a, a scenario for uh, fire sensing, fire spotting. Yep. Um, drones are really good, especially if you want to put a drone and go over a very large 100 kilometer area for the whole day. You can do that and you can do it pretty cheaply. Yeah. Like with a satellite, it's magnitudes more yeah, in terms yeah. of cost. Um, and all you would need was a, as a thermal or a infrared camera and essentially you can send a drone up for a 12-hour hot period of the day and when it's done, send it back home. And the probably the whole drone will probably cost you a hundred grand, mm. which is mm. you know, charm change when it comes to comparing that to satellite
1: technology. Yeah, indeed. And in terms of power supplies, I mean, you spoke about batteries, but the one thing I haven't seen, and maybe maybe it's out there, is I mean, these things are. Up in the sky, mm-hmm. there's plenty of sunlight. Why why are we not moving towards non-battery based drone systems, or is is it that the power requirements are, are so great that solar just isn't isn't viable? And it's too heavy, being you know so much silicon, or what's the deal there?
5: No, no, that's a great question. Um, there is lots and lots of research coming through in literature utilizing solar technology um, because you do. Mainly for fixed wing drones because mm-hmm. you have the surface area yeah, to right. put your solar panels. There is a lot of research on um, soft follow- photovoltaic cells, in which capture energy and turn it into electricity. The yield of solar energy is not high enough to sustain just that as the energy source. You'd need something else. Mm-hmm. So it's almost assistive, but it's not reliant at the moment but it may change Yeah. Uh, that relies on solar
1: technology and, and in terms of the, just the extreme environment you put drones into I mean how, how far can you go at this point I mean I'm, I'm thinking things like hurricanes and around volcanoes and so forth I mean how just how good are some of these drones or yeah. is it you know we sort of we're at a point where we can't get too far too close because they're all made of plastic and you know I mean it'd be great to be able to, I, I just have this image of taking a drone into a, a, a volcano sort of you know magma chamber and just doing stuff that you couldn't do in any other way.
5: Yeah, yeah. Um, We're fortunate enough in Melbourne to have a company called Aerosonde, Mm -hmm. um, which is now bought out by Textron Systems, but they developed one of the first drones to fly into hurricanes for environmental measurement. And... um, They gave a presentation to us last year. They went to Antarctica, and you're talking about missions that span two to 300 kilometres radius that can be up there for very long periods of time, 12 to 24 hours. Um, They're running on petrol systems, of course, not electric systems, but very, very capable technology, and yes, you can do that, but generally it's... Drones that the consumer doesn't generally see. No, of course not. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those niche markets that you really have to look to to Mm. find the technology. I want the volcano drone.
4: (laughs) So,
2: Matthew, you said that the Australian kind of market and the CASA regulations are some of the the freest and the the most give us the most freedom to use drones in the world in Australia. But is there any concern, or do you work with anyone that kind of is worrying about the security risks or the you know the personal? space risks of having more and more drones up in the air, flying around, looking at our stuff?
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's There's always a battle between, obviously, the private life of people. So, for photo and video drones, is the biggest concern. Um, the other side of the risk and concern is the damage or risk to humans when they're flying above us. Mm. So our uh, research is governed around how to solve this type of issue, because if we're going to be activating drones to deliver things to people, or whatever other mission that requires a drone to be in the same vicinity as a populated area, then the risk management needs to be there. So if something does happen um, with a drone, we have to ensure that no harm will come to people at a lesser level property as well. Mm. Um, so we are trying to develop that, but for the time being, The drone regulations for a normal drone operation is you have to be 30 metres away from people. Anything beyond that, anything that goes beyond a normal operation condition for for a drone, you need to do a full risk assessment, risk profile, and it has to be signed off by CASA, Mm -hmm. right? Which, Which makes it good because CASA will come in and say, no, that is not right. Yes, okay, we'll allow this, but you need to change this, this and this mm-hmm. with your operation.
2: And anybody who owns a drone, sorry, to ask another quick question, no. anybody who owns a drone goes to JB Hi-Fi, my uncle goes and buys one or something, are yeah. they they're, um, beheld into the same regulations?
5: Yeah, so uh, an under two kilo regulate, regulation occurs um, and you have to follow an operations um guideline, essentially, and you're not allowed to fly above 400 feet. You have to fly 30 metres away from people. You can't um, fly anywhere close unless people are participating in the actual mission itself. But then again, you have a 10-metre separation Mm. thereabouts. Um, Anything outside of that, you're not allowed to do, and that's because it's under two kilos. And the interesting thing about that is that that energy analysis, in terms of a drone falling from that, is exactly the same as a cricket ball flying into a stadium. Nice. And that's that's where they (laughs) got that type
1: of concept. Yep. So, um, well, look, yep. um, Matt, we're, we're out of time. So it's it's so it's so interesting, though. I mean, this is a technology that's going to transform so many things, so many sectors, and our personal lives and so forth. So it's good yeah. to hear that you guys are on it and, and looking at some of these difficult questions, as Dr. Linden asked. I think they're they're ones that people will be very concerned about, and it's good to hear that there are those guidelines. And hopefully, people, when you're out there buying your um, <laughs> stuff from whatever departments, oh yeah, you whatever, department from, store, sorry, um, <laughs> you got chairs. No. Um, <laughs> they uh, they will be, of course. Uh, looking into that and giving you good advice. But, Matthew, thanks so much for coming in. Have fun down there with your drones. It, yeah. it is of course, I can imagine, would be a lot of fun to teach, and I'm sure you guys have a lot of fun there, but it's uh, serious, serious work for a serious industry. Thanks so much for chatting to us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Dr. Dr. Matthew Marino is from the School of Engineering at RMIT University. Folks, we are out of time. Dr. Catherine, so lovely to have you in the studio.
0: Thank you, Dr. Shane. It's been a great morning.
1: It has. And, Dr. Lynn, good to see you again, and we'll we keep working on those theme shows. You and yep. I kind of come up, maybe won't rain or... You know, sun.
0: <laughs> weather, yeah, weather themes. All weather
1: themes. weather themes. It's all good. Folks, thanks for listening. This has been
0: a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.